0: The scripture lesson is from Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord.
1: Yeah, please be seated. Thank you, Laura. Last Sunday, we began a new preaching series on the book of Revelation entitled Famous Last Words. This last book in the Bible uh, is famous, mainly because it is the most misunderstood and misused book in the Bible, I would say. Some people have like this unhealthy fascination with it. Some people want to avoid it altogether. (laughs) I was in the latter camp uh, until I read a book by Eugene Peterson over Christmas that convinced me that the message of Revelation is massively important for the church today. Like I said last week, this is Eugene's fault, you blame him what happens uh, in this series, but I think we could all uh, use some education on what Revelation is all about and why it is the grand finale of the Bible. So last week, we tried to establish some ground rules for interpreting this book, and I'm going to go through them here again. Uh, Not will not do it every week, but here in the beginning, at least, will give us some ground rules. First of all, number one, this is apocalyptic literature, but that might not mean what you think it means. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypse, and that word literally means to uncover. But this doesn't primarily mean to uncover hidden secrets about the future, but to uncover unseen realities about the present. So it's like it's like a if you ever come into the house and someone's cooking and they got a, like a, a, a pot of stew or, or, or a soup cooking on the stove. And you, you walk in and you smell the soup immediately, but you can't quite tell what it is. You ever had this experience? So what do you do? You go to the pot and you take the lid off and you look inside and you uncover it to see that now it is butternut squash. And now you know what that smell is. That was an apocalypse. <laughs> it's an uncovering. What was hidden is uncovered to reveal what was there, but just out of sight. So that's what the book of Revelation is doing. It's not about predicting the future. It's about uncovering the hidden reality of the kingdom of heaven that is present even now, even though it's hidden behind the veil that separates earth from heaven. So this whole book came about because the apostle John is invited back behind the veil and he's told to write down what he sees and to tell it to the church. That's what apocalypse means. Secondly, it's a symbolic literature. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus signified this vision to the Apostle John, and that word is very important. Signified means to communicate by use of signs or symbols or patterns, like communion, right? This is a, a sign of something else. Therefore, we should not read Revelation literally. We should read it symbolically. It's like the work of an artist, revelation is a poetic rendering of the story of the gospel as told from the perspective of heaven and it's intended like good art to to wake us up to grab our attention to help us to see things in a new way and thirdly as part of our ground rules this is pastoral literature see revelation is not just a prophecy spoken into a vacuum it's a pastoral letter written to seven actual churches in asia who are suffering who we are trying to stay faithful to Jesus amidst tremendous pressure. So yes, this book contains eschatology, which is a word that means to study of last things. But always, always remember, eschatology is for the sake of pastoral encouragement. To help you, to help them, to help Christians uh, between Christ's first and second coming to endure, to know what's going on behind the veil. As I said last week, struggling churches in the first century won't be comforted by bizarre predictions of things that are going to happen thousands of years in the future. No, they're comforted by seeing that right now in heaven, God is in control. He is present with the churches. He's upholding them with his own right hand. But because this is symbolic literature, seven is the biblical number for fullness or completeness. So yes, it's a letter to the seven churches in Asia, but it's also a letter to the fullness of the church in all times, in all places, in all circumstances, to get a comforting glimpse of what's happening behind the scenes. That makes sense? All right. Today, we come to the first letter of one of these seven churches. It's the church in Ephesus. And now, before we get into the specifics of this, I need to make some preliminary observations on these seven letters as a whole as we dive in, okay? First of all, notice how essential the church is. How essential the church is. Eugene Peterson, in his book, makes this remarkable observation about the flow of the early chapters of Revelation. So so picture this. Chapter one, which we talked about last week, is an incredible vision of Christ, And then chapters 4 and 5 are this incredible vision of heaven. And what's sandwiched in between these things is chapters 2 and 3, which is a not-so-incredible vision of these seven struggling churches. (laughs) And Peterson says we would all, in our hearts we know, we would prefer to go directly from the glorious vision of Christ to the glorious ecstasies of heaven. But the book of Revelation won't let us. We have to go through the church first. Peterson says, the only way from Christ to heaven is through the church. And this is telling us something about the essential nature of the church. The only way from Christ to heaven is through his body, through his church. And I know how that feels. I think this is a direct challenge to the individual, individualistic tendencies in the American church. In fact, remember, these are letters written to churches, not to individuals. Whether we like it or not, the church is essential to the life of faith. As Peterson says, one of the immediate changes the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me. But Secondly, notice as an observation on the whole of these seven letters, how messy the church is. These seven churches are presented in such a way as to communicate that, on the whole, things are not going well. The church, as a whole, is not doing well. Churches one and seven are in the worst shape. Only churches two and six are in decent shape. In the middling churches, three, four, and five are well uh, middling. It's a mixture of good and bad. Five out of seven need significant reformation. And no one church bears the light of Christ perfectly. In other words, this is a direct challenge to our disillusionment tendencies in the American church. You probably know what this is like. We tend to become very easily disillusioned at the signs of weakness, the signs of struggle in the church. But brothers and sisters, it seems this is the way that it's been from the beginning. And yet, and yet, Christ dwells in the midst of them. When it says that he stands among the lampstands, that he stands among the churches, you should not imagine that he stands only among the good churches or the ones that have their stuff together, but among the same weak and struggling churches that you know and are trying to love. Peterson writes, for as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous to repentance, And there is no indication as yet that he has changed his policy in that regard. Churches are going to be an embarrassment to the fastidious and an affront to the upright. But, hear this, but a corrupt church still functions as a church. Dirty lampstands do not extinguish Christ's light. Third, preliminary observation. Notice there's a pattern to each letter. You're going to see it today. The seven, all the seven letters follow the same pattern. It begins with a tailored greeting to these churches from Christ, where he's taking a piece of that vision from Revelation 1, and he's applying it to this specific church. In other words, what that means is that Christ intimately knows each church. He knows just what part of his fullness they need the most. Next, this is followed by an affirmation of something they are doing right. Meaning Christ sees the good things that the church is doing. Christ sees the good things that you are doing, even if you feel like no one else does. Church should be the place where Christ shines his light on you to affirm what you're doing right. But as we know, church is not all affirmation because next what comes is a correction for something they are doing wrong. Church is also a place where Christ shines his light in order to reveal where we are off track. To warn us what will happen if we don't mend our ways, to encourage us to be healed by him. And then comes the motivation for why we should listen to and follow Christ. Therefore, church is a place where Christ motivates us to obedience and holiness through the promises that he alone can make, he alone can keep. And it motivates us to embrace any sacrifice necessary in order to attain these promises. And then finally, each letter concludes with a tailored promise that is also unique to each congregation, each church. But the heart of it, I want you to catch the heart of that pattern. Affirmation, correction, motivation. Affirmation, correction, motivation. This, brothers and sisters, is the heart of discipleship. We are affirmed. We are corrected. We are motivated in Christ. All right all the preliminary stuff out of the way. At last, we come to the first letter, which is to the church in Ephesus. And here's what I think. The message of this first letter is primarily this. Beware the church that loves doctrine, but has lost their love for Christ himself. Beware the church that loves doctrine, but has lost their love for Christ himself to which Presbyterian churches and denominations like ours say a collective. Ouch. That hurt. Because we love our doctrine. We love our theology. But this passage is going to challenge us that loving doctrine and loving Christ are not necessarily the same thing. It is possible to love doctrine, but to have forsaken your first love of Christ himself. That loving doctrine and loving Christ do not necessarily produce the same kinds of fruits, and especially the fruit of loving your neighbor and zeal for them to know the love of Christ. Beware the church that loves doctrine but has lost their love for Christ. Let's see how it unfolds. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, Remember, each of these seven churches is said to have a representative angel that, they, that is addressed to. They're called the seven stars. And again, I don't think we should interpret this literally, though that would be cool. I'd love if Res Prez has its own angel. I'd love to know his name, her name. I don't know. But I think actually what's going on here is a symbolic way to remind the churches that the church on earth is not the only reality. Is that the only reality there is. There is a spiritual reality of the church. It's rooted in heaven. And they have heavenly help at their disposal for their plight on earth. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. Remember that I said that each greeting is tailored to the specific circumstances of each church. So how is this a tailored greeting to Ephesus? Well, Ephesus is a city of power. It's a city of power and influence. They had a population of over a quarter million people. It was the local capital of the region. It was the most prominent city in all of Western Turkey at the time. It was the imperial power in the region. It was wealthy. It was prosperous. It was a magnificent city that housed the famous Temple of Diana, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Therefore, this greeting is tailored to the church dwelling in powerful Ephesus to remind them who has the real power in heaven and on earth. It's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. It's the sovereign king who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's saying, church at Ephesus, you have power dwelling in your midst. The one who holds all things together. The one, upholds, the one who upholds you as a church. Verse 2, he says, I know your works. Again, how wonderful. Even though the church is suffering and struggling, perhaps wondering if Christ has abandoned them, Jesus is intimately aware of everything that's going on in the churches. He says, I know your works. I see you. I see what you're doing right. And this begins the affirmation section of the church in Ephesus. What are they doing right? Well, lots of things. Jesus knows their toil, their patient endurance, their suffering for the sake of his name, that they have not grown weary. Brothers and sisters, what stands out the most is their love of doctrine. Verse 2, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. They're actually praised for their intolerance of evil in their community. And the way you tell the difference between what is good and what is evil is by good doctrine, good theology. Verse 2 continued, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Again, if you're going to be able to test and identify and reject false apostles, you've got to know your stuff, you've got to know your theology. Verse 6 says that both the Ephesians and God share a common hatred for the Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans, but we do know that they were false teachers who were leading the church astray. See what I'm saying? All this is to say the Ephesians love doctrine. They love theology. They love truth. They were like the gatekeepers of orthodoxy. And they protected their flock from those who would lead them astray. In fact, this good theological foundation is probably what allowed them to endure, to not grow weary. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this point, okay? To say, beware the church that loves doctrine but has lost their love for Christ, doesn't mean that we shouldn't love doctrine. Loving doctrine is good. The Ephesians are commended for their love of doctrine. The point is not to forget to love the one to whom all this doctrine is about. Jesus. So that it doesn't become only about refuting the heretics or winning the arguments or being the gatekeepers of truth. You know who else loved doctrine but lost their first love? The Pharisees. The Pharisees in the the Gospels. So, no, yeah, don't become Pharisees, but good doctrine is good. Good doctrine is vital. I began most of our men's study groups by the same way, by reminding us that everyone is a theologian. Everybody. Even the atheist is a theologian. His his theology is that God does not exist. We are all theologians. You are a theologian. You're either a good one or a poor one. And what makes a good one is that their theology is deeply rooted in the scriptures. So friends, good theology is good. It's so important today. It will help you know truth from error, right from wrong, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. It will help you know that your toil is not in vain. It will enable you to endure with patience, to bear up under suffering, to not grow weary. So by all means, love doctrine. Do everything you can to learn it. Study the Bible, join a study group, ask a friend or a mentor to help you. But friends, by all means, Do not only love doctrine. Do not forget to love the Christ of the doctrine. Or you too will receive this correction. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Some translations say you have forsaken your first love. It means you have lost the passionate love for Christ that you had at first. And now your passion has been directed towards doctr- doctrinal purity. You still have the outward forms of religion, but it lacks the light and the heat of the soul's affection. And Jesus says, remember. Remember where, from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like at first when the good news of the gospel first broke into your life and it was so sweet. Sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Remember when you tasted and you saw that the Lord was good. Remember what he saved you from. Remember how he saved you, how his kindness led you to repentance. Remember how it felt when it dawned on your heart that God really loves you not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that Christ did. Remember how you loved him because he first loved you. Jesus says, remember, and then repent, turn around and do the works that you did at first. I love this because what this means is that love is not primarily an emotion, but it's an action. Do the works you did at first. Do the things you did before simply because you love Jesus. When you recover your first love, it cannot help but to overflow in love to others. Because when you cherish Christ this deeply, you cannot help but to commend him to others. It works just like your favorite book or your favorite album or your favorite restaurant. It's so good and you love it so much, your joy is not complete unless you share it with others. By the way, that is my definition of evangelism. Enjoying Christ so much, you can't help but to express it to others. See what's happened. It seems that the sign that the church in Ephesus had lost its first love is that it had turned inward onto itself. Like churches tend to do. It was no longer turned outward, doing the works of love. Now they were the church of the inwardly pure doctrine, but they had lost the outward witness of pure love. Because love is an action. It's sacrificing for the sake of your neighbor, showing hospitality to the stranger. It's offering practical help, particularly to those in need the poor, the sick, the hungry. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, reminds us of just how revolutionary this is, was and is today. He says, that was the chief mark of the early church. No other ethnic group behaved like this. Love of this kind, reflecting God's own self-giving love for them, was both the best expression of and the best advertisement for faith in this God. Friends, I think this is why Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand if they do not repent. In this, he is reminding them that they are, in fact, a lampstand. And the purpose of a lampstand is to give light to others. Jesus is saying, remember, you are the light of the world, to witness to everyone of my love. And you can only do that if you come back to your first love. This is serious. It means that they are only an inward church that loves doctrine, but does not outwardly love their neighbor, neighbors. Christ will remove their lampstand. That's how serious this is. And brothers and sisters, I think this is so fascinating. Because of all the challenges that the first century church is facing, all the persecution, all the tribulation, all the temptation to compromise, the first threat that Jesus addresses is the one that comes from within the church inside the church, and that is our own tendency to withdraw from the world because we've abandoned the love we had at first. Is the same not true for us today. Of all the things we are facing today as the church, the first battlefield is right here in our own heart to not lose our love for Christ, to not turn inward onto ourselves, to not settle for just being doctrinal watchdogs. And then finally, Jesus gives the motivation. Not only that negative motivation of not having your lampstand removed, but also the positive motivation of being given access to the tree of life. That sounds amazing. Look at verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, this is tailored to the Ephesians. What you got to know is that the Temple of Diana was the dominant attraction in Ephesus. This temple was famous and it was known for its lush gardens, its lavish feasts from food that was offered as a sacrifice to her. It was known for its lustful orgies with temple prostitutes, because Diana was the god of fertility. It's actually possible that what the Nicolaitans, they were the ones who were teaching that the church, that it was okay for Christians to participate in these idolatrous banquets. They were the ones who justified, hey, you can love Jesus and you can love the parties at Diana's temple too. It's fine. Besides, the food at these parties is delicious and it's satisfying. It's good. It's like paradise. Notice through that context, Jesus promises that the one who conquers That is, to the one who refuses to compromise, to the one who maintains his most passionate love for Christ and Christ alone, he promises a feast that's so much better. It's better than anything you can find at the Temple of Diana or anywhere here on earth. You will be given food from the tree of life itself, which is housed in the most lavish paradise you can ever imagine. In other words, only loving Jesus as your first love will lead to the deep satisfaction you are longing for. So how do we conclude? Well, remember when we were all listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Is that old news now? Have we moved on? No? I haven't. I'm I'm still thinking about it. And I'm especially thinking about what is it that makes a church rise and fall? What makes it come and go? What can give it longevity and vitality? Because there was certainly a point in the Mars Hill story where you thought, this church is going to be here forever. And yet today, it is no more. Same is actually true for the church in Ephesus. It was one of the greatest churches and one of the greatest cities in the world. It was lauded in the second century as a great example of Christian faith and witness. It hosted in the fifth century the third ecumenical council, the Council of Ephesus in 431. Remember that, Cam, for your tests later. Guys, this is a church you would have thought would be around forever. But if you went to Ephesus today, you would find a whole lot of ruins. But you know what? You wouldn't find an active Christian church. Maybe the Lord did indeed remove their lampstand. So, what about us, Resurrection Presbyterian Church? We're four years old. Will we we still be here four more years from now? Or 40 years from now? Or if the Lord tarries, 400 years from now? What is it that makes the church rise and fall? I think the answer is in our passage today. Letter to the church in Ephesus that the church rises and falls on maintaining its first love for Christ. Amidst all the things that the church is supposed to be doing, this is our number one job. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. To sustain a passionate love for Christ and his gospel, which inevitably moves you to love others. Brothers and sisters, this is what will keep us turned outward to our neighbor. This is what will propel us in mission. This is is what will keep our lampstand burning strong. This is what makes the church the church. Love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, If I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. Let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Oh, Lord, we ask you uh, to forgive us for the times when we have loved your truth and your doctrine, but we have forgotten to love you. Lord, help us with, the, with this letter to Ephesus to remember from where we have fallen, to remember what it was like to first love you because we were, were so awed by the fact that you loved us. Help us to repent. Help us to return to the works we did at first. Lord, forgive us for our failures to love each other in this body and our neighbors around us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Do not remove our lampstand. Bring us back to our first love. And let us be known, Lord, first and foremost, by our love for you and for our neighbor. This is the greatest commandment. Please help us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.